0: to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. I'm Michael Sleesman, Managing Director and Research Scholar at the Center. In this edition of the Bioethics Podcast, we present the conclusion of an article by Brent Waters, D. Phil, entitled The Future of the Human Species. This article recently appeared in the fall 2009 issue of Ethics in Medicine, an in international journal of bioethics, and is used by permission. The content of this article is based on a plenary address given during CBHD's 2007 Summer Conference, Bioethics Nexus, the Future of Healthcare, Science, and Humanity. Dr. Waters is a confirmed plenary speaker for our 2010 Summer Conference, Beyond Therapy, Exploring Enhancement and Human Futures. For more information regarding the 2010 Summer Conference, please visit our website at cbhd.org. The Future of the Human Species, Part 2, by Brent Waters D. Phil. This leads to the second strand that we may call Pelagianism. Pelagianism is a theological doctrine that is derived from the arch-heretic Pelagius, who caught the wrath of St. Augustine. The central tenet is that Adam's fall did not corrupt human nature. Subsequent generations are not infected by original sin. They possess an innate ability to know the difference between right and wrong and may choose the former without God's assistance. Salvation resides within each human heart and does not depend upon the initiative of a divine redeemer. It is ultimately human action, not God's, that counts. Consequently, humans can will themselves to be good. They can even will themselves to be perfect, and they can use their technological ingenuity to help accomplish this perfection. In their more sober moments, nihilists and Pelagians recognize, however, that there are severe constraints that must be overcome in asserting the will to power and the will to perfection. This leads us to the third strand, which we may call Manichaeism. Manichaeism is a dualistic teaching that draws a sharp divide between the physical body and what may be variously described as an immaterial spirit, soul, or will. It is this immaterial essence which defines who we are and what we aspire to be. Unfortunately, this essence is trapped within a weak and fragile body that constrains the will to power and perfection. No matter how much in my youth I may have willed myself to be a major league pitcher, I did not have the body which would enable me to perfect a blazing fastball and killer curve. No matter how much we may will ourselves to live eventually, our bodies fail us and we die. What Manichaeans in every age long for is to be rescued to be saved from their physical bodies. The promise of virtual immortality, a life free of embodied limitations then, is also the promise of salvation. Given these formative strands, Christians are rightfully skeptical of the post-human project, for it represents a corruption of their faith. Christians may, in good faith, concede that the patterns and trajectories of human life are to a large extent a matter of the will, and such willing certainly entails gaining in a certain various kinds of power. In the absence of such willful power, civil communities, for instance, could not exist. What Christians do not affirm is that power itself is a proper object to be willed. Rather, power is a means of achieving that which is willed. What is the highest or greatest good that humans should will? The short answer is, of course, God. If we direct our will toward any lesser goods, our subsequent desires and lives become misdirected, disordered, or, to use a word that is falling out of favor, sinful. And the consequences of sin are grave. When the will is misaligned, for example, our attempts to fulfill the great command to love God and neighbor ends up as a love of self, which we expect God and our neighbors to honor and support. The will to power, in short, is little more than a thin justification for narcissistic self-indulgence. The great moral task of any generation is not the triumph of the self-oriented will, but to align what we will in obedience to God's will. Knowing God's will, much less aligning ourselves to it in faithful obedience, is admittedly no easy task. The ways of God are inscrutable and unsearchable, Contrary to Pelagius and his latter-day disciples, we do not have it within us to know the mind and will of God, and therefore we cannot know how to will and perfect the good. The great danger of Pelagianism is its underlying arrogance that if we just keep trying harder, we will somehow achieve perfection, but the endeavor itself is a fantasy. In his book, The Perfectibility of Men, John Passmore examines the unhappy legacy of Pelagius within the history of Western civilization. One of the more prominent problems is that the ideal perfection to be achieved is a moving target, subject to changing social, cultural, and political circumstances. At various times, contemplation, virtue, reason, politics, revolution, and eugenic purification have been lifted up as models of the perfect life that should be pursued. As Passmore notes, all of these projects failed miserably, And he adds the grim observation that whenever the idea of perfection, whatever it may happen to be, has seized public attention, there is increased intolerance directed against those judged to be incapable or unwilling to attain the proffered goal. What Plagians of any age fail to recognize is that what little we know about what perfection might mean is not a result of our will to power, but is a gift of grace. We cannot will ourselves to be perfect. We can only admit that in our imperfection we have been embraced and upheld by God in Christ. Receiving this gift of grace should not only inspire a response of gratitude, but should also make us mindful of the limits which are inherent to us as finite creatures that are in great need of this gift. Consequently, humans are not called to live lives in which they are constantly trying harder to obtain a perfection that cannot be attained but to live grace-filled lives of confession, repentance, and amendment of life. Or, in other words, to live lives as creatures of God who accept their finitude and mortality as a blessing rather than a curse. It is in respect to bodily limitations that humans encounter with great intensity the inherent limitations of their creaturely status. Humans are not only creatures, they are embodied creatures— as such, they are also finite and temporal beings, and therefore subject to bodily limitations. Humans cannot do everything they want, and they cannot live forever, since their bodies are unable to withstand the ravages of time and natural necessity. Post-humanists can only respond to these limits with a Manichean disgust and disdain for the body, because it is the chief obstacle preventing them from successfully achieving the will to power and perfection." This means, however, that the post-human project is predicated upon a fundamental contradiction. In order for humans to achieve their full potential, they must destroy their bodies. But in doing so, they destroy the very thing which makes them human. Despite all their rhetoric about enhancing the performance of bodily functions, the post-human project is nevertheless driven by a hatred and loathing of the body. Extending longevity and improving physical and mental functions is merely an interim strategy until such time that virtual immortality is achieved, liberating humans from their weak and fragile bodies. Yet is not this high-tech Manichean dream tantamount, as Paul Ramsey once observed, to a suicidal death wish for the human species? It is embodiment which decisively separates posthumanists and Christians, for their assessment of what it means to be human leads to differing beliefs about salvation. Unlike posthumanists, Christians have never believed that humans are creatures who unfortunately happen to have bodies. Rather, to invoke Ramsey's imagery again, humans are inextricably embodied souls and ensouled bodies. Consequently, humans are not saved from their bodies, but it is as embodied creatures that they are claimed, redeemed, and renewed by God. This is why Christians are not driven by a death wish, for as St. Paul reminds them, death remains the final enemy that is not to be fraternized with, much less warmly embraced. But humans consent to their mortal and finite limits because they are creatures who have been created in the image and likeness of God. It is as embodied creatures that they love, serve, and are in fellowship with God. The finite and temporal limits which posthumanists loathe and hate are received by Christians as a blessing for these limits enable them to be the creatures that God intends us to be. To despise the constraints and fragility of embodiment is to also despise the work of the Creator. If my portrayal of the post-human project as a religious movement incorporating the formative strands of nihilism, Pelagianism, and Manichaeism is at all correct, then there are good reasons why Christians should not only be skeptical, but should also oppose it. There are, to be sure, Rich resources within their theological tradition they may draw upon in making their case against the underlying false and heretical beliefs. But it is not enough to be against something. Simply opposing the posthuman project will not do. A constructive proposal regarding what Christians affirm must also be offered. If Christians are to help shape contemporary culture, particularly in a setting in which I fear the posthuman message will prove attractive, if not seductive, then they must offer an alternative and compelling vision, a counter-theological discourse, so to speak. In the remainder of this essay, I want to sketch out what some of the contours of this theological discourse might entail by focusing on two anthropological questions. The first, what does it mean to be human? And the second, what is the destiny of the human species? In addressing these questions, Christians begin with the simple affirmation that anthropology is Christology. What this admittedly inelegant phrase is meant to convey is that Jesus Christ is the short answer to both questions. One turns to Christ to learn what being human means and to catch a glimpse of our destiny as a species. In making this anthropological claim, it is important to keep in mind that in fixing our gaze on Christ, we are also encountering the triune God. The God who is in Christ, the Redeemer, is the same God who is the Creator and Sustainer, the God who is also Father and Holy Spirit. Being attentive to Christ is also attending to God in his fullness, the Eternal One, who is the origin and end of creation, and thereby the one who gives creation and its creatures their direction and purpose. It is only in this respect that Christ's otherwise immodest claim, that he is the Alpha and Omega, is explicable and illuminating. What might we find by fixing our gaze on Jesus Christ? An exhaustive answer is beyond the scope of a single paper, or the career of any single theologian for that matter. More modestly, allow me to suggest three things to look for. First, the Incarnation. The centerpiece of the Gospel is the extraordinary claim that in Jesus Christ God became a human being. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us full of grace and truth. We may say then that in the Incarnation the necessity of finitude and mortality, of human limitations more broadly, are affirmed rather than eliminated. It is important to stress, however, that in emptying himself and taking on human likeness, Christ also shares the human condition, complete with its suffering, pain, and death. In his life and ministry, Jesus does not avoid or escape the constraints of finitude, but embraces them, and in doing so reconfirms a divine blessing. The life and lives of God's creatures, however vulnerable, fragile, and imperfect they may be, are nonetheless good precisely because they have been created and blessed by God, a doxology that is sung, in a manner of speaking, in the Incarnation. Most importantly, Jesus does not cheat death. Again, it is important to stress that Jesus dies on the cross. The events of Good Friday produce a corpse that is placed in a tomb. How could it be otherwise if indeed the Word had become mortal flesh? But death is not the final word, which leads to the second item to look for in Jesus Christ, the resurrection. Drawing upon the work of Oliver O'Donovan, The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead vindicates Jesus' life and ministry. Moreover, since God is incarnate in human life, the vindication extends to all of creation. Because humans were not allowed to uncreate what God created, there is a created order to be discerned because it has been vindicated by its creator. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, in short, entails the resurrection of humankind, and with it the renewal of creation. What exactly does this vindication and renewal of creation entail? First and foremost, it di- discloses a created order which provides an objective standard and teleological order against which human desires are both judged and conformed. This objectivity is seen in what O'Donovan describes as the natural ethic. Contrary to the post-human project, the moral life is not a constructed artifact that is designed to enable the will to power and perfection. Rather, Christ's resurrection discloses in greater clarity that human life and lives should be oriented towards certain moral structures and relationships that are inherent to the order of creation. Women and men, for instance, are drawn to each other not merely to reproduce in perpetuating the species, but to also form bonds of affection between themselves and with their offspring. The generations are literally linked together through a natural chain of mutual and sacrificial love. The teleological order of creation can be seen in social structures which order and promote these bonds of love and affection. Marriage, for example, is oriented not only towards enriching love, affection, and mutuality between spouses, but also promoting mutual and self-sacrificial bonds between parents and children. It is through one generation surrendering itself to the following one that human life and lives flourish over time. What is especially noteworthy is that the embodied character of human life is absolutely crucial in obtaining these goods of marriage and family, for it is only as embodied creatures that humans can interact and love one another in any meaningful sense. The physical, finite, and temporal limitations which post-humanists decry are the very features which provide the rich texture of human life beyond the bare minimum of natural necessity. It is the creaturely finitude and mortality which are affirmed in the incarnation and vindicated in the resurrection that the post-human project wishes to annihilate. A vindicated and renewed creation is also genuinely liberating because it provides the foundation of obedient freedom. Through Christ's resurrection, we simultaneously look back to the origin of creation in Christ and to its destiny in Christ. This Janus-like vision leads to the third and final theological feature, namely eschatology or the destiny of the human species. In the absence of this dual orientation, humans become enslaved to a false perception of nature in which any inkling of a natural moral order is perceived as a threat. Consequently, finitude and mortality are inimical to their survival and flourishing. They are threats to human welfare, which must be vanquished. Hence the post-human project of transforming humans into an invulnerable and immortal species. The project, however, is based on the false assumption that freedom is expanded by overcoming all finite and temporal limits. Only the invulnerable and immortal being is purportedly free. But the post-human project is actually enslaving, for it leads to an inability to be obedient. And as such disabled beings, humans disfigure their proper dominion over and stewardship of creation into a domination and mastery of nature and human nature. By looking to creation's destiny in Christ, however, these so-called threats are revealed as given and necessary limits that define and order human life and lives. Humans are free to love their fate because it has already been taken up into the eternal life and fellowship of their Creator and Redeemer. In this respect, true freedom is a gift of the Spirit that frees us to be obedient to the definitive limits which shape our lives as finite, immortal creatures. In short, we are free only by being limited. To return to the previous example, we are only free to be married, When we limit our intimacy exclusively to one other person, we are only free to be parents when we constrain our self-interest for the benefits of our descendants. More broadly, Christ's resurrection from the dead discloses the destiny of creation and its creatures. There is a future trajectory revealed in the resurrection of the Incarnate One, signifying its destiny in the exalted Christ. Such a future orientation inspires an ordering of human life that is teleological rather than perfectionist. Creation and its creatures will be transformed in the fullness of time, and humans will contribute to this transformation. Post-humanists are correct in this regard, but they have been seized by a half-truth, which in its incompleteness proves destructive and dangerous. For our transformation is shaped by Christ, and not our attempts to overcome the finite Immortal limits of a created order, the Creator who has vindicated creation will also redeem its fully in the fullness of time. In this respect, a life of obedient freedom is also a life of preparation for eternal and timeless fellowship with God instead of a quest for immortal and endless time, consenting to God's will being done on earth rather than the triumph of our will to power and perfection. In this respect, humans look forward to this completion, this divine perfection, when even the created and natural goods of marriage and family, for instance, are no longer necessary. For the roles of wife, husband, parent, and child are transformed into the eternal fellowship of sisterhood and brotherhood in Christ. If the preceding analysis is at all correct, then we are offered sharply contrasting options regarding the future of the human species. On the one hand, the post-human project with its will to power and perfection and hatred of the human body offers the construction of a superior and immortal species. On the other hand, there is the Christian offer of eternal fellowship with God through a life of obedient conformity to God's will. But it is not a future that offers any escape from fin- finitude, suffering, and death. We must be careful about which destiny we choose, taking precautions that our choice is not the result of inattention or naivety. Practical decisions that are made today in regard to research and development in such areas as medicine, biotechnology, nanotechnology, and bionics, and the like, will not be inconsequential for the future. We must choose wisely, for contrary to the spirit of our age, the future is not something we construct." Rather, we are enveloped and enfolded into the particular destiny that we may choose. In his essay, Thinking About Technology, George Grant provides an insightful meditation on this question of destiny. He contends that we perceive technology as a collection of neutral instruments that we use in ways that we choose. Like any other technology, we use a computer, for instance, to read an e-book, keep a ledger, or surf the internet. The computer simply does not impose upon its user the ways it should be used. Grant believes that this reassuring image of technological neutrality is misleading. Of course, the computer, like any technology, imposes the ways it should be used upon its users. Otherwise, it could not be used for the purposes for which it was designed. Reading an e-book, for instance, is not the same as reading a printed book. More broadly, we cannot easily pick and choose how technologies are used because they incorporate certain values and purposes, which cannot be separated. Any project of technological development enfolds and shapes its users in its accompanying logic and destiny. As Grant has observed, quote, to put the matter crudely, when we p- represent technology to ourselves through its own common sense, we think of ourselves as picking and choosing in a supermarket, rather than within the analogy of the package deal. We have bought a package deal of far more fundamental novelness than simply a set of instruments under our control. It is a destiny which enfolds us in its own conceptions of instrumentality, neutrality, and purposiveness, End quote. Technological development inevitably transforms, for good or ill, those who are undertaking the project in the first place. It transforms who they think we are and what they aspire to become. If Grant is right then, we should be wary of the posthuman project, for once we initiate a process of transforming the human species, we become enveloped in a destiny that takes on a life of its own, one that is not subject to our control. And like any destiny, it imposes itself, and its imposition has stark and unavoidable moral consequences. And again, in Grant's trenchant words, quote, the coming to be of technology has required changes... And what we think is good, what we think good is, how we conceive sanity and madness, justice and injustice, rationality and irrationality, beauty and ugliness. End quote. Although Grant overstates his case for technological determinism, he nonetheless offers salient and sobering advice in regard to the post human project that once we start down the road of transforming ourselves, it will be difficult to slow the momentum much less change or reverse the course. The danger is that such momentum might carry humankind toward a destiny whose consequences are both unforeseen and unwanted. Yet we become locked into a new set of circumstances that we can neither change nor control, for there is no going back. To return to the computer as an example, when the internet was introduced with the great promise of easy and instant access to abundant information, who foresaw that it would also become a cesspool of pornography, child predators, and financial theft and fraud. Yet are there any serious proposals for tearing up or even staying off the information highway? To a large extent, Grant reinforces the messages of Hawthorne's stories. Be careful how you go about creating beauty in vulnerable and perfect people, for the projects may unfold you in a deadly destiny. This is an especially poignant warning, for it reminds us that the evil we commit is more often than not the result of a myopic moral vision than a wicked heart. Dr. Rappaccini loved his daughter, but he cared, in Hawthorne's words, quote, infinitely more for science than for mankind. End quote. And as the brilliant scientist looked upon his now perfectly beautiful but dead wife, Hawthorne notes, quote, he failed to look beyond the shadowy scope of time and living once for all in eternity to find the perfect future in the present. End quote. Is not finding the perfect future in the present the moral and religious challenge that confronts us in the prospect of a post-human future? And is this not a particularly difficult challenge in a late modern world which has largely forgotten how and where to look? This difficulty stems largely, I think, from a prevalent cultural conceit regarding creativity. We have come to believe that we are a creative people who have the power to create our world, ourselves, and our future. We are a creative people who are masters of our own fate, so why bother to look in the present when our gaze is fixed permanently toward the future? Yet arguably, as creatures we create nothing, for that is a task that is reserved exclusively by and for the creator. We make things, but that does not make us creative. Art best exemplifies the difference between making and creating. Artists make such things as paintings and sculptures. Skilled artists make beautiful objects, but they do not create beauty. Rather, their art reveals the beautiful, drawing the beholder into a realm that is beyond either the work of art or the artist. In this respect, art at its best is iconic for it points beyond itself to the creator of beauty. When we encounter good art, we look in and through it to the source of its beauty. Art is, in short, revelatory of something greater than itself, and is debased when it serves only to glorify and immortalize the so-called creativity of the artist. In a similar manner, may we not say that the post-human project is the attempt to create a superior species as the triumph of the will to power over nature and human nature, and thereby draws attention to its own ingenuity and creativity. And in recreating ourselves as self-made artifacts of the will to perfection, are not posthumanists trying to glorify and immortalize their own skill and creativity. Yet the end result will not so much be a superior and perfected species, but a debased humanity that has forgotten that they are creatures and not creators. In short, posthumans can point to nothing greater than themselves, beings that have drunk deeply from the poisonous wells of Manichaeism, Pelagianism, and Nihilism. As we take our first tentative steps toward a posthuman future, it is not enough for Christians to be critics alone. They must also embody and bear witness to an alternative future, a perfect future, which in Christ is already in the present. In this respect, They must insist that technology generally should be developed and used in iconic ways which reveal the ways of the Creator, who is the source of all that is good, true, and beautiful. In particular, Christians must strive to recover and preserve medicine as a healing art that discloses Jesus Christ as the true nature and destiny of the human species. That was the future of the human species, Part 2, by Brent Waters, D. Phil. Dr. Waters is the Stead Professor of Christian Social Ethics and Director of the Sted Center for Ethics and Values at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, Evanston, Illinois, USA. This article is adapted from a plenary address given at the conference, Bioethics Nexus, the Future of Healthcare, Science, and Humanity, held at Trinity International University, Deerfield, Illinois, July 2007. The article originally appeared in Ethics in Medicine, an International Journal of Bioethics, Issue 25, Volume 3, Fall 2009, and is used by permission. A print version of this essay, with references, is available on our website at cbhd.org. The Bioethics Podcast is a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the Center, and to support the work of the Center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website at cbhd.org. My name is Michael Sleesman, and I'm the Managing Director and Research Scholar of the Center. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast.